Morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Good to see you all. Hey, grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is where we'll find ourselves today, uh, continuing in our series called Draw Near. Uh, we spent four weeks really talking about what it looks like uh, to pray. Uh, four weeks uh, this week, kind of concluding that as we lead up to Advent services coming in the following four weeks as we anticipate uh, and celebrate uh, Jesus' uh, arrival. Um, we're looking to the past, embracing the present, and looking towards the future. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. I uh, want to let you know about a few fun things uh, that are happening as well. Look, the Advent season is a season where we get to have and some unique and some special services. Um, look, these are n- not just opportunities uh, to do something different for a different sake, but, but really to, to incorporate people into a really familial and celebratory time of year. And so here's what that looks like here at Double Oak. We're just going to have uh, some different things that are going to be happening in our services, some of which uh, will be markedly musical. Uh, so we're going to have a choir uh, over the course of the next few weeks. Specifically on the 19th, we'll have children uh, that will be leading us in worship. Um, they're not just here and cute, and, and we get to take pictures of them, and it's fun. Uh, th- those things are true, but ultimately they're going to be here leading us in worship on the 19th. We're really excited about that. Uh, look, over the course of the next four weeks, there's going to be opportunities to invite friends, neighbors, family to this place to, to hopefully help them see and experience the community that God has created here uh, and to allow them to experience and hear the gospel proclaimed, to hear that While they were yet sinners, Christ died for them. To hear that it's in their brokenness, it's in their pain, Christ has come and met them there to sympathize with their weaknesses, to meet them where they are. It's a really, really exciting thing. It's an exciting time of year, uh, and so really pumped about that. And hey, here's the other thing. I know a lot of you guys have taken advantage of this already. I've seen folks walking in here uh, with donuts, and that's totally cool. Nobody's against that. We're for that. Um, but hey, the donuts this morning are for a very particular reason. Um, we, we celebrate today one year in this facility, uh, which is really, really exciting, right? I always love the person that starts the woo, like as it's so soft, they're like, is this a loud woo? Is this like, we do this? Uh, man, those, those people are my favorite, so good job on the soft woo, whoever you are. Um, but look, one year in this place, and, and we want to be very clear, um, we call this church, we come to this place, and we call it church. Um, I think we all know that theologically there's problems with that. Uh, the, the reality is we, the church, enter this building. This is a building. You and I are the church, and we enter this building. I also know that we're not going to change that today. Like, we're still going to call this place the church, and that's okay. Uh, but look, this is a place where we've seen and got to experience God do incredible things in our hearts and lives. How many of you would say that God has impacted you in some way, shape, or form over the course of the last year by being a part of this gathering, this church, these people in this place? A number of us, right? A lot of first-time visitors today, for those of you who didn't raise your hand. Um, <laughs> look, look, this isn't something we want to celebrate. We want to be excited about what God has done here. Uh, and look, donuts are a simple way to do that. I had somebody... Uh, before before this service say that they thought uh, that they could make a case that, that the manna that we find uh, in the Old Testament was Krispy Kreme because it was bread and it was sweet. Um, I didn't want to kind of crush their spirit and say that's not true, but look, uh, donuts just a simple picture of the sweetness uh, and the kind of year that we've had here becoming God's people together. 
becoming a family of faith together. Um, and then here's the last thing. Uh, as we walk through this Advent season, um, there is this devotional uh, that we had a few minutes ago, and then we sold them all uh, after the first service. Uh, so it, and it felt really good. It's like, hey, I think we announced that well. People listened. Um, look, there's this devotion that a number of us, and we're just inviting our people, you, me, corporately, to walk through this this year. How many of you use an Advent devotion yearly? All right, a few of us. Uh, look, Paul David Tripp is the, is the author. There's this, there's this devotional called Come Let Us Adore Him. It's available for eight bucks at Connection Point. Just kidding. It was available for eight bucks at Connection Point. Now it is available on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. So um, there is, uh, there's a QR code, and you can go uh, scan that and pull it up. Uh, look, I'll be, I'll be using this. Our family's going to walk through it this year, uh, and it'll be a great way to have conversation and, and deepen your walk and relationship with Christ with your family. Uh, if you grab these and walk uh, through these. So you got a little more than a week and a half to get, to get that taken care of, uh, and then we can walk through that in this season together. All right, draw near, Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read uh, in a moment, beginning in verse 5, and read all the way through verse 13. Uh, and we're going to look at today, um, obviously, something that, you, that a number of us are, are incredibly familiar with. You'll see the heading there, uh, but this is what we would call and what most people call the Lord's Prayer. In this prayer series, in, in Draw Near, we, we've primarily, we haven't been in Matthew, uh, we've primarily been in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, uh, and, and really drawn out three premises from verses, or chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, and they are this, that first, that God has called us to draw near to him in prayer. And so we see in Hebrews 10 that, that God has said that not only can we, not only should we, but we have the, the boldness, the confidence, the authority to approach him in prayer by the new and living way that is Jesus, that is his flesh. That God has made a way for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for us to communicate, for us to commune, for us to pray, for us to talk to God. And we also saw in that passage that, that one of the components of that, one of the things that prayer looks like is this, is the confession of our hope. When we pray, we are truly confessing our hope. We're acknowledging that we're not the first one to speak, that we're not the one who starts the conversation, but instead we have been seen, we have been recognized. God has spoken to us first, and therefore prayer is not us starting the conversation with God. Instead, it is us responding we also confess as our hope that, that God is with us, that he is truly in us by his spirit, and that it is his spirit that prays for us when we don't even know how. That's the confession of our hope. We confess that Jesus lives, as the writer of Hebrews would say, to intercede for us, that he lives to intercede for us, to pray for us. And then finally, last week, we looked at the, at the kind of the culmination of that section uh, where the writer of Hebrews, who is carried along by God's Spirit, encourages believers in a time where, where they, they're being persecuted, they're being tempted away from the faith to return back to Jewish roots, to return back to the law. Instead, he says, don't give up the habit of meeting together. Don't give up meeting together. And we looked at the fact that one of the central focuses of the early church, one of the things that believers are called to do, one of the things that you and I are called to do is to gather together to pray. That when we draw near to God in a Western, individualized world, we think that prayer, quite frankly, is this personal thing. It's only personal. And yet we get the picture of the church as a praying church. 
one that is not just comprised of a bunch of people who are individual body parts all praying for the same thing or praying for the thing that they need, but instead that we are praying together, that we're praying together. And today, as we look at Matthew chapter 6, this centerpiece that we find in the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, we get to see the practicality of what it looks like to draw near to God. And the way in which we should draw near to God. Jesus teaches it very plainly for us, and we get to embrace and experience that today. Let's begin this morning uh, by reading Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. Matthew 6, 5 through 13, it says this. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, Go into your room and shut the door. Pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. We all want the practicalities. We all want to know the how-tos in life. There's this whole section of books uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of. I've, I've looked at some of them before. This, these lists or these, these long uh, rows of books that you would find in the Books a Million. Remember when we used to go to bookstores? Remember that, those days? Right? We didn't scan QR codes and ask you to order off Amazon where there were like actual physical books. Uh, this analogy breaks down very quickly. Uh, look, well, remember going into a bookstore and seeing that yellow and black shelf that was just everything under the sun for dummies, right? These things that were just intensely practical. Self-help is one of the biggest markets in the world. We want to know how to do stuff. We don't even, we really don't even have to learn how to do stuff anymore. We just watch a video on YouTube and we can do everything from, you know, build something or repair our car or do whatever, right? We're, we're a group of people, we are our folks that are fascinated with and enamored with getting things done. We want to get things done and we want to know how to do it. The disciples were no different from us in the sense that they would ask Jesus and they say, teach us to pray. They asked him, they said, teach us to pray. You look to the, to the Luke account of this in chapter 10 and you can really see the disciples specifically saying, how do, how do we pray? We want to pray the way that you pray. Teach us to pray. Jesus does this, but before he does, he addresses two ways not to pray. Two ways specifically not to pray. The first 
is not to be showy. Not to pray in such a way that others are impressed. Not to pray in these spaces where others would see you pray. And you'd be thought of well or honored for what an incredible person you are. And how pious you are. And how righteous you are for the way that you pray. This is what the hypocrites were doing. And Jesus says, don't pray like that. There's another way that we're called not to pray. We're called not to pray... These grandiose prayers that are, at their core, hollow and fake and empty. And with language that we think is beautiful and, and, and incredible and amazing, Jesus says, don't pray in that way. Why does he say these two things? Why does he address these two things? Because he's going to destroy these ideas of prayer, these incorrect ideas, with two words in just a moment. Our Father. Because here's what's happening in both of those forms of prayer. It's seeking to be impressive. It's seeking to be impressive. To be impressive to others, to be impressive to God. To be impressive by the way that you pray in these public forums and to be impressive to God, to go to God with all these flowery words, this incredible language that sounds so spiritual and majestic and amazing. Both of those are avenues to try to be impressive to God. I once heard a wise man say, you can be one of two things. You can either be impressive or you can be known. You're not going to be both. Here's what Jesus says. The Father knows what you need before you ask him. So you don't heap up these empty words. You don't go pray to be impressive. Why? Those kind of prayers are trying to create, they're trying to establish, they're trying to make some sort of status. To cause others to see that you have this relationship with God. To cause God to see that he should have this relationship with you. Because you're so impressive and you're so incredible. When Jesus is our father. He says, don't you understand that I've established the relationship for you. I've established the relationship for you. We're going to look at six particular things out of these verses today, six principles that I believe um, that are presented here in this text that help us to understand how to pray. Six simple things, but the first one comes out of this Our Father phrase, and it's this. We're called to recognize the relationship that we have with God in prayer. If you and I want to pray, and we want to pray as Jesus wants us to pray, the first thing that we do is that we're called to recognize the relationship that we have with God. That my opportunity to pray is connected to the fact that Jesus has lived, that he died, he was buried, he was raised on the third day. 
that we live in Jesus' resurrection life and we participate in that, the implication of that is that we get the opportunity to pray in Jesus' name. We're praying in Jesus because of the relationship that he has given us as sons with the Father by the power of the Spirit. So we can boldly pray our Father. When we do this, we're praying the way Jesus wants us to pray because we're recognizing the relationship that he has created. And look at these three things. When we look at those four words, our Father in heaven, you see three things. One, that this relationship is personal. It's our Father. It's not just identifying God as personal and calling him Father, but that he is personal to us. Do you see that? You and I are drawn into his fatherhood, into his personhood. This relationship, the father-child relationship that is one that is truly characterized by unconditional love, we're drawn into that. This is personal. Here's the second thing. It's loving. That language of father is loving. This is 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. 1 John 3 one, and it says this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is why we would sing words this morning that we are children of God, that we're a child of God. This is why we sing, I am who you say I am. God says that we're his children, so we are. This is why we would sing this. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Do you understand that the love that God has given to us, that he's bestowed upon us, that love that looks like this, that he would give his one and only son, that you and I should not perish, that we shouldn't die, but that we could have everlasting, eternal life, abundant life in him. He loves us in such a way that we should be called children of God. That father language that Jesus uses communicates the deep love he has for us. So this relationship is personal. It's loving. And then look at this last line, our, or last two words of this line, our father in heaven. Now look, in heaven here is meant to communicate something more than just location. It's really in the location of seeing God in heaven that we understand his sovereignty his power, his omnipotence. We get to see in prayer, Jesus teaches us God's sovereignty, his authority. So recognizing the relationship is the very first thing that we do in prayer. And we see God to be personal, to be loving, to be powerful. The theologian John Stott says this, he says, he combines his fatherly love with heavenly power. And what his love directs, his power is able to perform. Why do we go to God in prayer? How can we go confidently? How can we go boldly? Because his love will direct his power. That father will be glorified and will care for you out of his power. Our father in heaven, the goal is to recognize the relationship. The second thing is this. Um, Look at the line below, uh, the last part of verse 9. Hallowed be your name. Here's the second thing that we're called to do in prayer. Jesus teaches us. We're called to reorient ourselves to spiritual reality. 
you and I are called to reorient ourselves to spiritual reality. Look at this line. Hallowed be your name. All right, what's in a name? What's in a name? Because look, we use names as identity markers. We use it as differentiation at times. And then we use it in a sense of affection, right? But here's the thing. In Jesus' day, in ancient Judaism, don't miss this, a name represented in some total, in fullness, who they were to the core of them, their character. So a name didn't merely identify someone. It illuminated everything about them. It told you who they were. So this is what God's name is. It's hallowed. It's to be set apart, holy. But here's the thing that I think you and I often miss. And I confess, I've missed this in prayer. Jesus is not calling us to make God's name holy. I want to say this very clearly because it sounds strange. But Jesus is not calling us to make his name holy. This language of hallowed be your name is action that Jesus is asking God the Father to take. Here's what he's saying in this moment. God, glorify yourself. That is the point of this prayer. God, glorify yourself. Look at John chapter 12, verses 27 through 28. You'll see language like this again appear in John 17 in the high priestly prayer. But Jesus is on his journey toward the end of his earthly ministry. And he says this, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. A bright guy named Scott McKnight would say it this way. What Jesus has in mind is clear. He wants God to act, to bring in the kingdom, and to display his rule. Our recognition of the goal of life being us just being able to be caught up into enjoyment of God being glorified. That God would be glorified and that we'd get to take part by enjoying him in that. This moment in prayer reorients all of us to the understanding that life is about God's glory. And in this moment, we're being aligned with God's will. So much so that we would pray it this way. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we got to recognize the relationship. That's what Jesus teaches us. That he's truly our father. Personal, loving, powerful. That we're called to, in recognition, not only of his name, but to truly ask him to glorify himself. To be caught up into the spiritual reality of what life is. That God would be glorified. That prayer is not this thing now where... Okay, God loves me, so now I'm just going to go ask him for a bunch of stuff that I want. But no, instead, we're being drawn into the very will and heart of the Father that he would be glorified. That Christ would be exalted. When Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's the principle. He's calling us to hope in the here and now. 
to confidently expect him to work in the here and now. Your kingdom come. That word kingdom is loaded for not only those who are following Jesus, but all that are in earshot. These people have lived the lives of monarchies and kingdoms. This is tough for us because we live in a democratic republic, right? This is like we don't live in such a way where there, there is one reigning. So sometimes it's really hard for us to grasp, but you know the history of these people. You know God's people and what they've walked through. And kingdom to them meant that there was hope coming. That there would be this messianic king, one who would bring an end to the tyranny of the world that oppressed them. From Egypt to Babylonian exile and beyond, to present day. A people who identified with pain and with suffering. In a personal way, in a familial way, in a national way, in a spiritual way. They hoped for peace to come and to escape pain and suffering. And in that way, they really were like their Gentile counterparts, the people that were, that were look, of, of Greek and, and Roman descent and lived in a world where, where the goal was to have the most unbothered and beautiful and perfect and painless life possible. The followers of Jesus... Those who were following Yahweh, they were caught up in that desire for peace too. And the peace that Jesus brought did not look like what they expected or hoped. This is what Mark 8, 27 through 33 says. Mark chapter 8, 27 through 33. Have you ever had that experience with somebody where you wonder how somebody can be so right in one moment? Brilliant even. And then so wrong. Incredibly wrong. Not just they didn't get it right, but this is the worst choice that we could have possibly made here. We get to watch Peter do that when we read Mark 8. Mark 8, 27 through 33. Because here's what happens. Jesus is on his way with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. All right, heads up, this is the moment where Peter's right, okay? We're proud of him for it. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And look at these words. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I think you've caught on at this point, but heads up, this is where Peter goes wrong. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The kingdom coming does not look like what Peter wants. These disciples have plainly heard of the suffering of the Son of Man that Jesus has taught them about. That he must die. And they don't want 
to hear it. Disciples want a new kingdom, but they don't want it this way. And what Jesus prays and asks God to do is greater and more beautiful. It's for peace to come and take place here. For God to reign in peace here through our hearts by his spirit. Not that, not that we would live in a world where, where we're caught up and just away from the pain and suffering. No, but that God would come to this place of brokenness and that his kingdom would come here, that his will would be done, and that peace would rule through Jesus Christ. That God's will for life, the rule of his kingdom, would take place among us in these broken places. All of these three things that have come thus far, that God's name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done, are all prayers to God for him to act, for him to do these things. And the remaining petitions, the last, the last three of these, these last three principles are really going to focus on what, what we as people need. They show and express our dependence on God. And in this room, week after week, we would say that we depend on him. We would say it and we would sing it together weekly. We would recognize that he holds all things together, that we're fully dependent on him. Look at the language that he uses in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Here's the fourth thing. So we recognize the relationship in prayer. We see our father as one who is personal, loving, powerful. In the second sense, we, we see that we'll be reoriented into the spiritual reality of life, that God is to be glorified, that my coming to him, my prayer to him is caught up in the recognition of who he is. These prayers are not about me. And then we express that, that we hope for, we confidently expect him to do this work of his kingdom coming here now in the midst of our brokenness. Here's the fourth thing. Give us this day our daily bread. Here's what we see. Our hunger ought to breed humility. Our hunger ought to yield, it ought to breed humility. Think about the glory that has taken place right here. Our Father in heaven, he's sovereign, he's powerful over, above all things. His name is set apart and it's not set apart because we in our brokenness and our sin have turned and, and now we set it apart. No, he is set apart because of who he is. And he is the one whose kingdom will come, whose reign will never end. All of that glory that is just prayed, and now it's bread. I think it's funny. It's bread. God's glory, now it's bread. But here's what's glorious and beautiful about this. And we'll celebrate this over the course of Advent because this is the picture that we get of it in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9. And we get to read throughout each of the gospel accounts, the, the, the synoptics, the picture of Jesus coming. This is the beauty of the incarnation is that God comes to us. God with us. And Jesus teaches us in this prayer that God meets us in the most basic Human, just this is the intrinsic thing of human life, is that we need to eat. That we're hungry. That we have these simple, simple needs. And when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, when we recognize that we have daily needs, you and I recognize God as giver. And our hearts 
are directed to him and our hearts are transformed in him by his spirit. This language, this day, our daily bread, it really is day to day. That's what it means. It means day to day. All right, one of my favorite things about um, life and sports is that um, sports has all this nuance of language, right? Uh, especially the sport of baseball. Baseball has this, this, this crazy language. There's all this stuff. Because most of the time, let's just be honest, there's a lot of people that aren't doing anything, and God's got to talk about it to keep you engaged, okay? Um, look, there's, there's all this wild language. I, I heard this one time from a guy, and it really, really stuck with me. Um, there's a guy named Dan Patrick, and, and on SportsCenter, he's talking about a baseball player. There's all this language in baseball surrounding injuries. One of them is, is this language that's called day-to-day. So if somebody gets hurt, right, but it's not, not broken, nobody's arm's falling off, like they're just, they're just, they've tweaked something, they've bruised something, they've strained something, these players would be known as day-to-day. You'd even see it running along the bottom of the ticker, right? Like you'd see it on your TV, like, you know, Dale Murphy is day-to-day or whatever. This guy, Dan Patrick, on SportsCenter said this thing that has always stuck with me, and it's really, really brilliant. He talked about this player that got hurt. And so Andre Dawson, you're a Cubs guy. Give it to Brian. Like Andre Dawson. Andre Dawson is day-to-day. He's telling, he's telling everybody this. But then he says, but then again, aren't we all? This guy's day-to-day, but aren't we all? Do you know what he's saying in that moment? He's saying that it's rare for us to see ourselves as day-to-day. It's strange, it's unique for us to see ourselves as daily need people. Because we're doing it right now. Who's got plans for Thursday? We know what we're going to cook. We know what we're going to go get. Most of us are now looking around like, I should have gotten that already. I didn't get that. (laughs) We're all going to be fighting at that one Publix for these things. Um, Look, we make plans for the future. Nothing wrong with that at all. By any means. My wife's a big proponent of this. I'm kind of on the other end of it. I'll let it ride. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of you have seen this. Um, but look, we make plans for stuff. Nothing wrong with that. We got plans for next week. We got plans for next month. We've got plans for next year. And some of us have five-year plans and ten-year plans. And I love you. You're nuts. But I love you. Um, we make all these plans. And when we do that, very often we forget that we're day-to-day. I'm day-to-day. It's hard for us to sense that and get a real palpable sense of that, to get a real man-of-life understanding of being day-to-day because we have consistent employment or jobs or income, right? We have all this stuff that would lead us to believe and unfortunately help us take for granted that you and I need That we're needy. We're daily bread people. And you can fight it and you can say, you know what? I mean, but I've worked hard and I've done all these things and I've and I've gotten this good job. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't have really have to worry about where stuff's coming from. Who gives you the breath to get up and go to that job every morning? Who keeps that heart beating? Who allows blood to course through those veins? It's the God of the universe who holds all things together, including you and me. 
including us, we're daily bread people. We can translate this uh, specifically day to day for the current day. Look, we're to view life in a day at a time perspective. When we go to pray, we get to recognize God providing everything for us. We're good at praying before meals. I've watched a bunch of you do it when I walk into Station 31 and I see you praying before you eat that delicious burger, right? I see you. I watch you do that. Let's not make that this thing that we just do. Let's make it an understanding that God has provided for me yet again in this moment, at this day, at this hour. Let's pray in that way. And let even something as simple as our human hunger draw us into a place of humility. All right, look at these last two verses. Jesus teaches to pray and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now look, this language uh, it doesn't seem strange to us in many ways. Look, debt was the deepest burden of this society at this time. Jesus could have used a number of things, but he, he likens forgiveness to, he explains it through the deep reality of debt that was over people at this time and in this moment. But look at the way it's worded. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We often read it like this. Forgive me, God, because I forgive others. That's not what this says. I've got this buddy uh, that I'm friends with, and he would say it this way. That the Greek here indicates that it would mean this. As we, along with this forgiveness that we've received from you, forgive our debtors. It's being forgiven that begets forgiveness. Our own repentance is the birthplace of forgiveness for others. And this passage also shows, these verses very clearly show, that those who forgive are those who've been forgiven. When we go pray, this is the fifth principle, it's this. We forgive because we've been forgiven. I'm going to say this, and I, I, and I don't mean this in a pious way, because there's probably somebody in here who's forgiving me right now for something. Legitimately, like there really may be. This morning, spend some time praying. Not only for my own forgiveness, but forgiving somebody. It's a real reality. God's drawing us into that. Will we take hold of that? Will we take hold of that and forgive others? How can we do that? Where does that come from? You don't understand how they've hurt me. You don't understand the pain I've experienced. You were a sinner. You're separate. Broken from God in every way. And he who knew no sin became sin. Jesus did that. So that you could become the righteousness of God. So that you could experience forgiveness. Believe the gospel and forgive your neighbor. All right. Last thing. Number six. We need to pray for protection. Look at verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. And this language for us seems weird. Why would we pray for God to deliver us from the thing that we know that he is not going to lead us to? Why does Jesus word it in that way? Lead us not into temptation. Here's the thing. Jesus is using something that would be common for the time, but a literary device, and he's expressing something by saying a negative. He's really doing this thing where he's catching his disciples. He's catching his hearers. He's catching those with an earshot in such a way that he's saying, don't just pray like this in a cursory, read over it, and God lead us into righteousness because you're righteous and you're God, and that's the stuff you do. But in this powerful way, he says, lead us not into temptation. He's showing us by God's power what God will not do for our sake. He's showing us where he's certainly not leading us. And then finally this, the evil one. It says, but deliver us from evil, but, but, but we really see Historically, and looking at the language, the connotation is that of the evil one. This is he who shall be named Satan, the liar, the accuser, the thief, our enemy, the one who seeks to destroy us. Jesus knows our weaknesses, he knows our broken places. He knows our propensity to not believe the gospel, to not trust him, to not follow him in a day-by-day, moment-by-moment life that we live. And so he urges us to ask God the Father to call upon that promise that he has made to continually protect us, to keep us from evil, to be rescued I cannot think of a better way to close out a, a series when, when we're talking in just four short weeks about, about prayer. About how we can pray, that we have the authority, the ability to draw near to God. That in prayer we know why we pray, because it's the confession of our hope to God himself. That we pray together in our spirit and corporately. And then now these, these ways that we can pray and experience communion with God. I can't think of a better way to live in a posture of prayer than to come to the table this morning. I want to ask our elders uh, and deacons who are coming to serve to come join us um, you guys are going to take communion first, right? Okay. Um, this is a way that we get to practice drawing near this morning. Look, we sing weekly, or not weekly, but we, we sing quite often here um, this song called Run to the Father. You know that song. That song resonates with you. Very prayerful song. that We run to the Father. But here's the thing. Some of you this morning need to run to this table. You need to run to this table. And I know you won't do it. Like nobody's going to hit a sprint in here, or like catch a jog to, to get here. But in your heart, you need to run to this table. You need to recognize that 
that sin, that thing that you've done, that pain is not beyond the redemption of Christ's body broken for you and his blood shed for you for the remission of your sins, that blood that's poured out in the new covenant for you. And in your heart, you need to run to the table this morning. Confess your sin, repent, and come to the table. You know what this table is? It's a place where you draw near because you're confessing your hope in a practical, physical, tangible way. We are confessing our hope. How do we know that we were the ones that got spoken to, that we're not the ones that started the conversation in prayer? Here's how. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is God speaking to us. And we have the picture of his body broken and his blood shed. This is the confession of our hope. Let's draw near to the table this morning and confess this. And look, we're in the habit lately of doing new stuff. I have a tendency to call it weird stuff, but new stuff, all right, in the ways that we respond in corporate worship. We draw near in prayer, not just individually, but together. I would ask you very, very plainly, when you come to this table this morning, to the best of your ability, look around and like, really, like, look around. There's like four people looking around, like, really look around. Don't come to the table alone this morning. Come celebrate what God has done in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus with brothers and sisters here. Let's, let's meet together at the table this morning. And when you come to the table this morning, Recognize your identity. You don't come to this table because you are worthy. You come to this table for the opposite reason, because you're not. But that your life is secure in Christ. By his body, by his blood, his life, his death, his resurrection. It's that resurrection life that you're caught up into. So come to this table prayerfully this morning, remembering your identity. And you know what you'll do when you get here? You'll get to reorient your life to the, the spiritual reality that it is God who is sovereign, that it's he who's to be glorified above all things. And you get to see, I, I get to see this every week as I watch you come to the table, I get to see a picture of God's kingdom coming. Here, his will being done amongst the people of God. And when you take the bread this morning... Would you truly see it and taste and feel that tangible piece of bread? And remember your daily needs. Now, when you come to this table this morning with others, would you remember that God has forgiven you? And you look around and you look at people and you think about the life of relationships that we lead. And we have the opportunity to live in such a way where we would forgive others because God has forgiven us. And finally, as you leave this table, you're going to walk back out into a weary world this morning. One in which the enemy seeks to not just throw you off course or not just divert you, but in a very real sense, destroy you and distract you. It starts with these small, subtle, insidious things that the enemy is out for you, would you leave this table asking God to protect you and to offer you the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to those you love, to people in your neighborhood, to people near you?
as we come to this time at the table. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, that's how you teach us to pray, to pray in this way. Your Son has taught us to call you our Father, to recognize that you are personal, that you are loving, that you are powerful, that you are sovereign over all. God, that you are to be glorified. Father, we pray that you would glorify yourself, that your kingdom would come, your will would be done, and that we get to be a part of seeing that peace come, even in the midst of this broken world. God, help us to recognize our needs. God, truly how day-to-day we are, moment by moment, breath by breath. God, help us recognize your forgiveness, and as a result, forgive others. And Father, lead us into righteousness. Protect us from the evil one. Pray these things truly through the name of the one who taught us to pray them, your son Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, in Christ's name, amen. Hey, this is a table this morning. This is something that we do. Um, this meal is one that is not, uh, is not one that, that is just rote or ritual or we just do this thing. We do this because Jesus has commanded us to do it. And we do it in remembrance of him. Here's what I would boldly ask you. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've not repented and believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, I would ask you not to come to this table. And instead, I would ask you to go to Jesus for the very first time. And to repent of your sins. This is the gospel that Jesus lived that he died for each of us. He made propitiation, atonement for our sins and was raised. He defeated death and we get to participate in that life if we will repent and confess our sins and trust in him as Savior. If that's where you are and you need to pray that prayer, pray that first. And if you need us, any of us, Jason, Richard, Chase, myself, Brian, Neil, a number of us here, if, if that's where you are, please come talk to us after the service. You might want to walk back into the booth and talk to Greg or Dustin. You might not want to walk forward. I get that. People don't like to walk forward. I get it. It's not super fun. I tripped in front of you all like probably 10 times already. And then talk about, talk about one year. I think we could just make a blooper reel of me in this place. Um, look, go to the Lord. Don't miss the opportunity to come to this place where you can continually call him Father. Um, and now, would you just come together, and can we just celebrate what God's done, the new and living way he's made for us? Uh, and let's dine together this morning to celebrate.